Welcome to the On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast, the only show that dares to go both on topic and usually on location. Each time we meet, we bring together a group of IT luminaries to discuss a single concept. In this episode, we're talking storage management and the limits of uh, humans' capabilities to manage storage. Are you smart enough to manage storage anymore? First, let's meet our guests. This is Prakash. I'm the general manager of the Digital Experience Business Unit here at Pure Storage. Been working in and around storage systems for about three years, but prior to that, have a decade working in databases and in and around data and storage systems. Hello, I am Gina Rosenthal. I'm the founder of Digital Sunshine Solutions. I do the PMM work. You can't find a PMM to do. Um, and I've been around storage my entire career. And my name is Chris Grundeman. Uh, I am a coach, mentor, consultant, and content creator. You can learn more about me on chrisgrundeman.com. And I'm your host, Stephen Foskett, organizer of Tech Field Day, publisher of Gestalt IT, and all-around storage nerd. You can find me at S. Foskett. So in this episode, which is sponsored by Pure Storage, we are discussing storage management, which is a topic near and dear to my heart. Frankly, I've been managing storage for longer than I care to remember. Uh, and I was definitely of the let's make a spreadsheet, let's write every fact down, let's have a cell for every port name and port number and LUN assignment and LUN size and LUN configuration and all that kind of stuff. And then a few years back, I wrote a column in Storage Magazine called basically it's time to sit back and let the machine manage itself. And I think that as a storage manager, it's really hard for me to accept that but increasingly we're having to because of course things are increasingly autonomous, uh, flexible, they change, and frankly they're complicated. Uh, Prakash, what is the reality of storage management in the 2020s and how has it changed since the days of Excel spreadsheets? Well, you know, I think storage is only as interesting the application or the data you're putting on it. And there was a time where you would, you know, be tweaking the storage system to be able to deal with the type of application and the type of data, you know, circa 10 years ago. Over time, though, as the media has gotten faster and things have gotten denser, um, there's been the, the ability to go ahead and simplify storage management to the point at which you can just have common application profiles. So if it's a structured database or a SQL database, you could do one thing. But you fast forward kind of how people are using storage right now. People are using storage in almost a transparent way with container-driven applications where you can, you know, new machines can spin up new volumes all the time. So, you know, a spreadsheet caps out at 65,000 lines at one point. And I know Microsoft has some, done some updates at that point, but what if you move beyond 10,000 volumes and 50,000 volumes to hey, every machine has its own space and its own volume. What does that mean? Does that mean millions of volumes? How do you place the data? How do you dedupe the data? You need to get to the point where you need automation to drive that. So I think the reason we had spreadsheets though was we didn't have anything else, right? So we wanted to make sure that we were able to squeeze out every little thing we needed to squeeze out as far as performance goes 
at the same time, we needed to keep track of where everything was. So we were able to bring it back if it failed. We were able to do all of the disaster recovery, all of the things that we needed to do by hand because it wasn't an application to do it for us. Even where there were applications to do it, we didn't trust them <laughs> because you know that's kind of why we're storage nerds is we care about the data and what happens. So I guess, you know, yeah, it's great that um, we have applications to do that, but what are they not showing us that we have to worry about? So you have a spreadsheet of, <laughs> maybe you don't have a spreadsheet for every single one and every single adapter and everything else, but you still have a spreadsheet of what's going on because you know the applications aren't handling what's going on. So that like that's would be my first reaction. And the second reaction is, what happens when all of us retire and do whatever we do in retirement, which is not going to be touching computers, hopefully, which it will be, but you know what I mean. Um, who, who's teaching the next generation how to manage storage so they don't have to worry about managing storage? Well, there's there's two pieces to that, right? The first one was the way you organize storage has changed over time. If you think about the cloud today, you aren't managing things based on volumes anymore. You might be managing things based on a storage class or a tenant or an availability zone and assigning your data protection policies, your storage replication policies, your synchronous replication policies, whatever policies you're doing at a much higher level than just a volume. Because, you know, it's getting bigger, it's getting more complicated. You need a way of organizing the storage. And the good news is we're at the point where there, there have been systems around for now five to seven years in storage management that do that, that allowed you, allow you to organize storage into pods or tag those pods and say, these are the applications that have this type of availability profile for these types of volumes or these types of file systems. Because not every, like, I think as you rightly said, it does come down to how do you get the most out of your storage, right? You're paying for your storage, but sometimes you need a high performant, highly resilient storage. Sometimes that's less important. If the class of applications is, is a non-production type application, you may not have the same uptime SLAs. So organizing the information can be done with automation. And the first set of automation you can use to organize the information is just giving someone management. How do you tag it? How do you organize it? Let the humans do that. But at some point, it becomes a little bit unwieldy. The premise of, hey, humans can't actually manage storage really comes to play when you get to scale. You can go ahead and say, hey, I'm going to tag these and organize these and group these and assign policies that way. But if the generation of the objects is faster than your ability to keep up with it, there's no way humans can continue to manage storage. You need to have a learning system that learns, hey, you know what? These types of applications need this type of performance profile or uptime profile or protection policies. And you should be able to dynamically discover and assign them. And maybe humans are there as a checkpoint right, as verif verification, but not management at that point. So I think if I, if I tease apart kind of what Prakash is saying and what Gina was saying, um, I, I think there's a couple of different avenues to look at this through, right? And, and one is, um, I think there's a story, I think it's um, 
a science fiction story where they talk about this future state is actually just a short story. I think it was one of Isaac Asimov's. And there's this kind of proxy war going on where drones are battling each other in space and when neither side can get an upper hand on the other side. And one day this kid is brought into the Admiral's office and he's got something to show him, right? And, and basically what turns out, he's worked out how to do longhand math, which of course humans have forgotten about how to do at this point. And by learning how to do math, he realizes they can actually put pilots into the ships and outthink their drone enemies. Um, and the only reason I bring that up is because I think where Gina was heading is there's potential here where if we, just make everything automatic and have it just work, right? You may lose that ability for humans to really understand and troubleshoot when things go wrong. And so that's one, one definite concern of this, right? And then the other piece is, right, that the two-sided coin, one side is the curmudgeonly old storage person saying, you know, you'll tear my fingers off my Excel spreadsheet um, when, they're, when they're cold and not full of storage anymore. But the other side of that is, I actually know things about storage that are really unique to the way I like to tune things. And I wanna make sure I can get in there and change those knobs. And so, I, I, and I think those two things kind of come together in some of the resistance to something, you know, under the umbrella of AI ops call it, right? Where I wanna have that control because I know what I'm doing and I wanna be able to fix things when they go wrong. Oh, 100%. But if you, let, let's break apart both of those, right? The first one is what I call the nerd knobs, right? The storage nerd knobs. There are people who want the nerd knobs. Um, I think that's the storage system of a decade ago. And like, you know, we, we actually, when Pure Storage introduced storage systems a decade ago, we took away the nerd knobs. You don't get nerd knobs. Why? Because you know what? As much as there's smart people out there, there's also people who mess, mess things up with the nerd knobs. If you think about outages, more of them were caused by human error than they were, were a failure of parts. Um, so, by taking those away and standardizing, it's doing what SaaS has done in the cloud. If you think there was a point in CRM systems at one point where people would customize and build their own CRM systems and then Salesforce came around and standardized it. Um, that's been done in storage. I've seen that. Like today, people don't get to choose, you know, hey, what block sizes am, am I configuring a flash array on? That, that world is over. Um, there are people that are still addicted to that, right? Because it's like what you know, it's the people who are the mainframe operators, right? They're like, well, I know my MIPS and you're gonna take that away over my dead body. But what, what I will say is, as systems get more complicated, the nerd knobs change. Previously, the nerd knob could have been block size and it could have been this, that, and the other. The new things you need to configure now are higher up. and the way algorithms and systems need to learn is actually through humans. How do you know what to apply and what's working and what's not working? Well, whenever you're building a learning system, you can actually take input of like, what are the operators doing? And if you have more time built of operators running, think about education. If the algorithms measured how many collective hours of storage admins managing storage. Can you train a new storage administrator in a single human lifetime to do as good as the algorithm? You wouldn't be able to based on hours managed. So this doesn't happen overnight. This is a longer term transition on how do you actually train 
and enable your learning models. But that training and enablement needs to happen on what I would call the next gen nerd knobs, not the old nerd knobs. Needs to be policy-based, availability zone organization, tenant organization. Not down to block size or, you know, at do I need, what quotas do I need on this file system directory or those types of things. Those, those types of things have been automated away for quite some time now. It's interesting that you bring up, uh, you know, the nerd knobs and the configuration because, of course, um, this was always one of the challenges as a storage administrator was that I was having demands put on me by people higher in the stack, basically telling me how to configure the storage. I mean, there's the classic, the classic story of DBAs refusing to put a database on RAID 5, for example. And I spent years saying, no, no, no. Today's RAID 5 is not the RAID 5 that you've been warned about. Like these are not the droids you're looking for. Let me put your, your, your database on RAID 5. And they're always like, no, no, no. Everybody knows RAID 5 sucks. Um, so, you know, how, how are we gonna deal with those kind of questions? I mean, you brought it up uh, with, uh, with your mainframe guy. Uh, you know, how are we gonna deal with those kind of pushback on automated storage? Well, let's, how long has VMware been around, right? There was a time when everyone was tuning everything down to bare metal systems and then VMware came along and said, hey, you know what, it's behind a virtual machine and actually created a lowest common denominator that wasn't efficient or optimized at that point. And I would argue that 90% of those applications that were traditionally, you know, mission critical databases or DBAs running are now vir virtualized today and deployed behind a virtual machine. Um, so it's al there's already been standardization going on and those layers do today have some overhead. And they're becoming more efficient over time as well. But you know, when you think about how to deploy this at scale, the way you can move beyond where people are at today is create, a, create an environment of trust. What if there's a future where you create a few what I would call new nerd knobs. And the first one is a volume knob from zero to 10 of price performance. And let's say you just turn it, right? So you're giving that to a DBA or a you know, VM admin, not a storage admin. You're giving them the, the knob and say, you turn this up and your dollar per terabyte changes. And something happens behind the scenes. The light goes from green to yellow. Um, Someone might be racking and stacking things, moving it around, moving it from this storage to that storage where a machine may do it. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right? Um, but when the light goes back green, you're now running at a different performance class. Or what if you had another volume knob that was nines, three nines, four nines, five nines, six nines, seven nines. And you shouldn't have to worry whether your data is synchronously replicated between two arrays, well, what RAID configuration's on, whether it's three-way synchronized, et cetera, you're just setting the nines because that's what you want. And if you move to an SLA-driven world, which we see people doing today, we see SLAs are becoming a thing, there's a violation for a missed SLA. So as the world becomes more SLA-centric, you can create trust. And trust is reinforcing. That's how you bring the humans along. But you know, you let, what are the what are the real knobs you need? Price performance is one. Uptime is another. Are there other knobs? Maybe. But 
they need to be policy and outcome based, not technology based, because technology is always changing. If you think about media types, you had MLC, like you had disk, then you had MLC, TLC, QLC, Intel Optane. You now have so many different layers of latency and bandwidth optimized media types in a storage system. How do you use them all? On the interconnects, you have fiber channel, you have ethernet, you have NVMe over fabric, you have NVMe over fabric PCP. So how do you extend the bus over to keep the CPUs busy? Like the whole underlying concepts behind a storage system are fundamentally changing with media type changes and network changes built internal to the storage system. So the only way to stay up to date is actually think about the policy and the outcome, not the technology, and op leave the technology optimization to the technologists. But doesn't that mean, when you say leave the technology optimization to the technologists, doesn't that mean storage admins? Well, the no, I, I think it means algorithms, because if I had to think about the number of par parameters I needed to deal with today, I couldn't do it. With the number of media types and the different tiers I could have and the number of objects I could have and the number of policies I could set and the number of choices, too many choices that exist today, it's, I think, beyond manageable at this point. So you need to group it, you need to organize it. And I could do that probably today as a human, but as the problem gets more complicated, a learning system is the only way, uh, only way that I think it can be managed. So I know that there's definitely multiple ways of, of, of looking at this and, and zooming out kind of, you know, not just at storage, but also perhaps the, the broader perspective here of, the skills shortages across IT infrastructure, right? I mean, these are things that are that are a real things. So even if we we said, hey, you know what, we're going to have an expert human, you know, at the wheel of every storage decision we're ever going to make within a data center, um, it, it appears anyway that we don't quite have enough humans. And and so then the concern becomes then, okay, well then, you know, where do we put that trust and where do we put those smarts? And it feels like, you know, one way to do that is to say, okay, um, my, my storage provider, and whether that's a managed service provider or an as-a-service provider or, or, or a more of a traditional vendor, I'm going to say, okay, you know what? I just have to trust you. Um, you give me the knobs that I really need, and you handle everything else behind the curtain. Um, obviously, that's been talked about in IT circles as vendor lock-in and with a lot of you know, kind of nefarious uh, you know, eye rolls and things over, over the years what is it that allows us to kind of have that trust now? Because I mean, obviously the technology's advanced quite a bit, right? I mean, I think we do have these machine learning algorithms that are available to learn and, and bring this stuff forward, but does that make me trust my vendor any more than, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago? Well, you know, what I found is trust, the, my approach in terms of how I trust people comes down to the experience I've had with them. It doesn't come down to the technology. It doesn't come down to what they could do in the future. It's what they've done for me in the past. Um, and there are you know, relationships that I think I would say, hey, you know what? I probably wouldn't work with that vendor again. And then there are relationships that I'd be like, oh, that was great. Like I trust these people are gonna work and invent the future. And if you think about lock-in today, there's macro things happening where the lock-in doesn't come from storage anymore. Storage is standardized to block file an object and file has NFS and SMB. 
you've got four protocols and you've got a bunch of vendors that write, but Locken comes from your application development environments. If you're writing on Amazon today and using Redshift or Aurora DB or Elastic MR, you're locking yourself into an application development environment. If you're using Google BigQuery, you're locking yourself into an application development environment. If you're using Azure SQL PaaS services, you're locking yourself into an application development environment. Now, could any one of those, what's underneath all of those cloud services I mentioned, block file or object? Object being an S3 API, file being NFS or SMB, and then block being iSCSI or fiber channel mounted? Like that, how many choices are there for storage? A ton, you know what I mean? So like, I, I have a hard time buying that, you know, like that layer is the layer that creates the outward facing view to storage. And everyone's got those layers. Right? If you're working in a storage system, you have the protocols that you're surfacing data up to. And how often is a new protocol really created that creates lock-in? Amazon created the last one with the S3 API. But now there's a ton of vendors. Minio has an S3 API. Peer Storage has an S3 API in our FlashBlade. There's a bunch of vendors in market that now have an S3 compatible system. But what? It took a few decades between the time a file system was created and the time the S3 API is created, is there really going to be another protocol interface that creates lock into a storage system? I know a lot of startups have tried and they, most of them have gone out of business. Well, right? I think that the lock-in really has to do more with data gravity when you look at storage. Like the more storage you get, the more data gravity. That's where the lock-in comes from. But I kind of wanted to get back to the whole idea of, of AI and are humans smart enough to to dry, to manage storage anymore? Because I, I kind of like, you know, I, I, the whole learning system is interesting to me, especially as we make the jump really, it's a really big leap of faith to go to the trust issue before we discuss this a little more. You know, we have a very small subsection of the industry, um, like Chris was saying, that knows how to manage storage anymore. And things are changing, yes, but all of the world's data still sits on storage. We've got data sitting in mainframes for heaven's sakes. So um, I'm not, what, what makes me a little bit concerned is it takes a very important skill set and frame of reference and point of view and constitution to be able to be a storage admin because you are fighting people that don't understand um, the implications of their requests sometimes. Um, so being able to do that in a very healthy political way and not drink too much at night or stay up too night, <laughs> you know, like it's just a big health issue as well, being a storage admin. And, you, you know, we hear you talking about having to train that AI system to be able to, to do what it needs to do. And it kind of sounded like in the beginning, we're talking about how do we make these on-premises on storage arrays available more like the cloud, the public cloud storages because kind of a false equivalency because you do have somebody managing that storage. We just never hear about them because it's not an offering. So tying that all together, I still think there's a huge need. You need to have the right humans doing the training 
Does the training look the same for every environment? That's probably the biggest question. Is this training going to look the same for every storage environment? What does that look like going forward? I don't think you ever get rid of the humans. I don't think you can. You need somebody with a spreadsheet someplace that understands how everything is tied together to make sure that's what happens on the machine learning and then eventually AI part is actually giving the, uh, that it's, it's giving the outputs that you think it should and that it's secure from any kind of unwanted learning. That was a lot. <laughs> Y'all know well, what I mean. <laughs> well, let, me, let me ask you this, Gina. Um, there was a time when creating a LUN had to happen from a human being. Mm -hmm. There's a time that it still happens today. Mm -hmm. Are there applications so, yeah. today, you know, building in container worlds that via an API, just from the application, provision volumes? Mm -hmm. That exists today. Right. Um, and as the world becomes more API driven from an application development where people just declare, I want this block of 50 terabytes or I want this you know, object bucket or it becomes more declarative and API driven. Then the spreadsheets out of date continue. Oh yeah, nobody so, wants to think, yeah. You know what I mean? So you need you need a system that starts with telemetry and discovery. You need to be able to measure what's out there. Like today, like ransomware is big in the industry right now. It's like a big hot topic of what's going on in storage. Um, and you know, I find that sometimes people don't even know what's out there in their real estate. It's like, oh, that got hit. Is that okay? Am I okay losing that data? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> or should I pay for it? Like, unless you really have a really up-to-date catalog, which you can only build through just monitoring, right? You need a monitor that can go ahead and detect things that are happening in the wild. Mm -hmm. Storage used to be highly governed and highly controlled. That's changing today based on the way applications are being built. And even, no, I, even I, when we used to manage things manually, I mean, I used to go. I used to go regularly and just query the system. You know, show me all your LUNs, show me your configuration, and compare it to my spreadsheet. And invariably, I would find something that wasn't documented, and wasn't officially created or created correctly. So I think you're right that um, you know we can't just assume that any kind of static uh, system is correct. Um, and and I guess you know to me it sounds kind of like one of these perennial questions of, of, of IT, which is sort of when do we take our hands off the wheel and let the system do its thing? And, and in between, you know, driving a stick shift, you know, with, with manually, you know, non-power brakes and everything. And in between that and self-driving car, there's sort of this wasteland of confusion. Am I right? Oh, 100%. Um, if I take a look, my, you know, would I trust turning on the autopilot on the Tesla if I knew that it didn't have a lot of miles driven? No, I wouldn't. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, like, there are very few people who say, I want to be the early adopter to that technology, right? Um, it's about having that miles driven. I think it's back to Gino's point of saying, um, it needs to be trained by the right people under the right conditions, right? I don't think this is an overnight switch you can flip, but 
you also can't go back saying, I'm going to teach my kids how to use the clutch and the stick, you know, like that, I, my kids like right now, I, I wonder when they start driving, whether they're going to want to drive or whether they're just going to want to Uber everywhere. You know what I mean? Like, it's really weird this generation seeing what they want to, what they want to deal with and what they want to put up with. And I would argue that the new storage admin or the new skill set coming on, it's going to be hard to train, find someone who comes out of school saying, I want to work on optimizing setting block sizes for a LUN for Oracle versus SQL Server differently. That's not the skill set that I think someone's going to develop nowadays. And therefore, these things constantly need to move up the automation, automation chain. I agree. However, <laughs> you know, first of all, I think everyone should learn how to drive a stick. But <laughs> secondly, um, I'm not talking about, you know, having, you know, junior storage admins excited about, you know, creating their own line. But I do think it's important that they know how that it's done so that they understand how the automation works. Because like you were given the example of the automated car, you have to know how to bring it off automation and how to drive it when the need arises and when it doesn't, when it's not appropriate to use it. So I think that it's important for people coming into the industry to understand what that makes, you know, how, how what that means to create a LUN, what a LUN is. I mean, there's all sorts of things you could start with because what happens, you know, you know, if that autumn, if something does go wrong and you troubleshoot it and ransomware is a great example. If, if something goes wrong and you need to troubleshoot it and isolate it and see how things have spread, you may need to understand how the underlying system actually works without the automation there. Wouldn't you agree? Actually, I completely disagree on that. Um, <laughs> uh, that's a good one. You got me like, going. Um, so the, if you take a look, this is the problem I have with generally the on-premise software world as a whole. I believe that SaaS is the way the world is going. And what SaaS means is you are giving or signing away your proprietary knowledge of how the system works and giving it to someone else to run, operate, manage, because at scale, they could do it better than you can. It, the example I used in Salesforce CRM is the example like that I'll give again. You don't know what database Salesforce is using. You don't know how they're configuring it. You're signing up for a SaaS CRM application. And the vendor takes the SLA and the responsibility for it. Things go wrong. Absolutely, things will go wrong, right? There are going to be things that happen in Salesforce's world, but they're providing you a service. And I view the future of storage to be very, very similar, where today you can get a storage system you subscribe to whether it's on-premise or not, where the vendor takes the SLA. They give you a performance SLA, they give you a capacity management SLA, and if something goes wrong, it's on the vendor, not on you. And that starts with a SaaS approach of, let me monitor it so I can know, let me manage the headroom when you're gonna run out of capacity, let me go ahead and build an architecture that I can constantly update performance without data migrations, all of those things are key to it as a service storage system, which 
you know, when I take a look at the discussions I'm having with customers today, I see, I see people driving to. That is, that is the outcome people want. And at the vendor, you know, you may argue that at the vendor, there's still going to be someone that needs to know. But the way the vendor wrote the storage operating system, they can debug the logs better than any customer can. And if they do it in an autonomous way, they can offer a better uptime guarantee, a better performance SLA guarantee, a better capacity management guarantee. And all of it is driven through automation. Otherwise, the vendor has to scale their storage personnel at the same rate at they, as they acquire customers and generally go out of business because they can never become profitable. The economies of scale mean that algorithms will do more and people will do less. Will people be non-existent? No. There's always going to be a backstop, right? But that is the sassification of storage. So, you know, to, to kind of follow on that, you know, the thing that that got me thinking about is a wise man once told me that the, uh, the counterpoint toward, you know, driving is not self-driving or autonomous vehicles. The counterpoint is not owning a vehicle, is <laughs> like transportation services. In other words, it's not a, so like we're, you know, sometimes people argue the wrong question. It's like, you know, oh, you know, let's, you know, my horse is going to be faster than your horse. And the answer is, oh, look, where's that car come from, you know? And so uh, in terms of storage management, I think that actually, Prakash, I'm kind of agreeing with you here that the ultimate answer to this question is not, uh, you know, autonomous storage management. The ultimate answer is storage as a service. Am I wrong? No, look, I, I agree. But what I would state is there's a double click. The storage as a service needs the automation, right? That's how you deliver storage as a service. I think you wouldn't be able to deliver storage as a service without automation. That's true, but the end user doesn't care. End user just Yeah, they don't care if it's automated or if it's an army of 100 monkeys pushing buttons. They just want the service to work, right? I mean, Gina, Chris, what do you think? Yeah, it's really interesting to think about this in the context of the overall paradigm shift. I mean, we've obviously seen the cloudification of, of so many businesses, um, and, and we've kind of started calling that digital transformation, which actually means something else. But in a lot of cases, people use it as shorthand to mean I've outsourced my data center operations to someone else who calls themselves public. And, and with that, I definitely see that also continuing in other areas, right, where now, okay, I've moved my human resources out of the building. I've moved my digital resources out of the building. How do I manage this network? And so we're seeing a lot of network as a service in SD-WAN and, and now you know, the security as a service over the top of managed network services. And so this definitely seems to be the trend that we're currently on. Um, I don't know how much that pendulum swings from mainframe to do it yourself to mainframe. I don't know what, what the exact cycle of that thing is, but we're definitely on one of its moves where it seems like we're pushing everything to but instead of mainframes this time, it's it's very specialized vendors that are doing each of these pieces very well. And so you've got the limited amount of human resources available that are experts in these areas focusing on it for specific service providers to then provide that specific service to everyone else who needs it, which does seem to be kind of the way evolution works 
towards specialization and and building an ecosystem of folks that work together to do the best that I can do in order to do the best that we can do. Um, in that light, it's very, very interesting, for sure. Yeah, so Chris, like, I, I completely agree, right? We're, at the end of the day, we want to make the world a better place. We want people to, you know, get the outcomes that they want. And we want the GDP of technology to generally go down so you can do more with less. Um, and I, I do believe that autom automation and storage is going to play, play a big role there uh, to the point at which humans, you know, will not be able to keep up. So what do you think, Gina? Is this, uh, is this a compelling alternative to storage management? Well, you know, I, I think that the industry is moving on and we are on another swing, another uh, different technology curve for sure. But every time we do this, there has to be some balance to bring it back to the middle. You know, and then we that's how we get to the next big swing and the next innovation. I don't think you can leave the humans out of it. Every time we've tried to leave the humans out of it, um, there's big things that people haven't thought of that we need someone with expertise. But hey, man, that's why we have consultants. So looks good to me. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a really fun conversation. And I really appreciate everybody uh, weighing in on this. Uh, before we go, uh, where can people connect with you and uh, continue the conversation? Chris? Uh, I love having conversations on LinkedIn lately. That's been a really great place for, for actual two-way communication or three or four or five-way. Uh, but you can also follow me on Twitter at Chris Grundeman or visit my website, chrisgrundeman.com. Yeah, Twitter and LinkedIn are the best two places to get a hold of me on both. I am G-Minks, G-M-I-N-K-S. And if you're interested in more of what I do um, with, with Digital Sunshine Solutions, you can go to digitalsunshinesolutions.com. I prefer LinkedIn as my primary form of communication. You can find me on LinkedIn. And you know, right now we have our Accelerate conference as well. So for anyone who's interested in hearing more about these topics, whether it be storage automation or the as a service economy powered by storage automation, that's primarily what we're driving here at Peer Storage. So feel free to go to peerstorage.com and check out our Accelerate conference. And you can find me at uh, gestaltit.com. Uh, you can find me on social media at S. Foskett. Um, you can also go to your local library and read old issues of Storage Magazine, where you can learn how I suggested people manage storage uh, 10, 12, 15 years ago. All right. So thank you very much for joining us today for the On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast. If you enjoyed this discussion, uh, please do subscribe, rate, and review the show. And please do share it with your friends, whether they're storage managers or not. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by GestaltIT.com, your home for IT coverage from across the enterprise. And this episode was sponsored by Pure Storage. For show notes and more episodes, go to GestaltIT.com slash podcast. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>